It is a great pleasure to welcome back to the program uh, a native son of Chicago and uh, a man who graces uh, one of the major newspapers uh, at that newspaper. They consider themselves the major newspaper of the country and the world, namely the New York Times. One of the best things in the New York Times, Ira, as far as I'm concerned, is your writing. And much of it Thank has you. been gathered Thank together you. in this book titled The Minority Quarterback and Other Lives in Sports. Every, these are all built around people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And every well, people in, people interest me. I mean, uh, st statistics uh, you can look them up in a book. Yeah, you know, but you have to observe people. And all of these people are connected in one way or another to sports. Even Woody Allen, as we've learned before we're done tonight. Right. But I want to go directly to the person who is pictured on the cover, mm -hmm. and who is the uh, figure about whom you write in one of the stories in the book, the minority quarterback. Yeah, it's Marcus Jacoby, and um, the. Um, the cover is a detailed photograph from a team picture of uh, the Southern University uh, football team of uh, 1997. Down in Baton Rouge. In Baton Rouge. And uh, there uh, are about, uh, what, 8, 10, 12 black players yeah. around one white player. It's a black school, basically. It's a, it's a, it's a black, historically black school. Yeah. And uh, Marcus is the lone white, and he was the uh, uh, the title is the minority quarterback. When you normally, when you would think in uh, in our day of a minority, uh, you would think of a black person. But it turns out that it's a white person at this uh, historically black school. Well, of course, in a way, it confirms an old white prejudice. Well, blacks might be good in football on the line, but they're not smart enough to be quarterback. Well, that was a big problem for Marcus Jacoby when he went to uh, to Southern University. Uh, he's from Baton Rouge. He didn't know many black people, really. He lived, the blacks were on one, literally, on one side of the tracks. The whites were on the other side of the tracks. Uh, and uh, he went to uh, 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 Louisiana Tech to begin with. And uh, he was a good football player. He was a star uh, 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 high school player. But he realized that uh, there was a great quarterback at Louisiana Tech, and he wasn't going to play too much. And so he wasn't sure what he was going to do with his career. He went back to Baton Rouge, and uh, he was working out with a few black guys who were from Southern, uh, friends of uh, who he got friendly with. And um, they told him that there was a quarterback problem at Southern University, that uh, the, the star quarterback had graduated, the next guy uh, uh, flunked out, uh, another guy really uh, didn't have the experience, and, uh, and they wondered if, uh, if uh, they, they could recommend Marcus to the coach. Now, the coach is named Richardson, and he had come to Southern several years earlier, about four or five years earlier, and the program had been bad, and he turned the whole program around, made this a winning program. And so uh, he heard about Marcus Jacoby. Uh, he scouted him, and he said, okay, this, this guy could play for me. And so Marcus uh, eventually went to Southern, and the only two people who felt that there wasn't going to be a problem with a white guy playing quarterback was Marcus Jacoby and the coach. They they were totally colorblind, and were they in for a rude shock? Well, the attitude of the black guys. The attitude of the black. black. First of all, they felt. Uh, I mean, as you had said, well, you know, I, quarterback is the most probably the most sensitive position <laughs> in all of of team sports, and it's the thinking man's position. Exactly, of course. And for years, there weren't any black quarterbacks. There were blacks in almost every other position, but not in black quarterbacks. So. In the last except at the black colleges, except in the black colleges. But when they became, when these quarterbacks went into the pro, got into the pros, they were made defensive backs. Mm -hmm. 
uh, or running backs, but not quarterbacks. So finally, they're 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 now quarterbacks. And here's a white guy uh, being so a quarterback. So it's kind of an insult to the team. In a way. It was a, it was a, a, an insult to the team in two ways. One is the, the white quarterback, and also uh, um, that uh, he's the brains. But also they felt well. Uh, we had some other black guys who weren't being given a chance to play. Well, it turns out that Marcus was the best quarterback that they had, and uh, so he. But he went through a uh, a series of of events that was the uh, uh, it was it was reverse discrimination. Kind of broke him. It, it it it. Well, it was breaking him. Yeah. And uh, in his first year, uh, he had um, he had a couple of uh, bad games early, and then they started to win. They went on a winning streak. And they went to the championship of the of the black colleges, and they were losing uh, to Howard University. Uh, and there was about a minute left to go in the game, and there were three points down, and they're about on the 20-yard line. And he throws a pass, which if it's good, they win the championship. It was intercepted. They lose the championship. And when Marcus comes back to the campus, there are nooses hanging from trees. There are death threats. Uh, this rocked him, of course, and rocked and uh, and rocked his parents. They didn't want him to go back. Marcus said, "I have to go back," and he went back the second year. Leads them again to the black championship. Mm. This time, he throws the pass to win the championship. Uh, he goes to the third year, and, at the, and after the first game. He still hasn't changed the attitudes of the people around him. He felt they still were looking at him as white boy. And and then he decided, I just, I've proved myself, but I just can't take it anymore. And after the first game of his third season, he quit. And did he quit school, too? He, uh, he quit Southern University. He went across town to Louisiana State University, <coughs> and um, and he became a student. He's a very, he was a very good student. And, and he was working part-time as a waiter in a, a very good uh, Cajun restaurant called Mike Anderson's Restaurant, the best Cajun restaurant in the area in Baton Rouge. He was in, working in Baton Rouge. And they had a, a, uh, a touch football team in a tournament, in a league, and they asked Marcus to be the quarterback. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm just so turned off of football, he turned them down. Where is he now? Uh, he's, uh, he's a stockbroker in, uh, in Houston, Texas, I, mm -hmm. uh, last I heard. He's still only a man in his mid-20s, I would imagine. Uh, Marcus is about uh, 25, 26 yeah. years old. It's a, it's a wonderful contrast. That story really links to another one you've got in this book about Larry Doby, starting mm -hmm. with the Cleveland Indians. Right. It interested me particularly because an old friend of mine, as he was later in his life, uh, Lou Boudreau, was the man who uh, brought Doby onto the Indians. Yeah. Um, well, Doby was the second black... Uh, African-American in Major League Baseball. Just a month or two after Jackie Robinson. Right. Um, Robinson broke in with the Dodgers in April of 1947. Doby broke in, in at the end of June mm -hmm. of uh, 1947, which is a matter of a few months. But um, all the racism that Jackie Robinson encountered in the National League, Doby was encountering in the American League. Uh, but uh, He got the cold shoulder from most of his teammates on the Indians. Right. When when uh, Bill Veck, who was a, a remarkable man in many ways, owned the uh, the Indians and was really also concerned with a lot of matters, including Native American Indians. Yeah. Um, and in fact, when 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 he and midgets and midgets, he was he was very fond of midgets, well, one particular midget anyway. Yeah. And uh, but um, uh, he brought Doby onto the Indians and um, 
It was an all-white team, of course. And then Lou Boudreau, who was the manager of the team, brought Dobie into the locker room, Indians locker room, to meet the players. And Dobie remembers that more than half of the players wouldn't shake his hand. And uh, he was confused and stunned. He had grown up in New Jersey, and uh, he felt that, that he didn't encounter any racism in New Jersey. He was like a four, um, a four uh, sport uh, star, uh, and he was just a fabulous athlete in high school. And uh, he just but never encountered anything. There's a really like touching that. scene there. I guess maybe it's his first game. Uh, they they picked him up from one of the Negro League teams. I forget. Yeah, Newark, Newark, Newark Bears. It? And uh, he's standing out there with his glove on when they're supposed to be hustling before the game, and nobody will throw a ball at him. Yeah, nobody will play catch with him. Yeah. Uh, it was. Um, it's amazing what they all went through, you know. And um, and one thing that rankles him a bit is that Jackie got all of the credit for being the yeah. brave man who took it on by himself, whereas Dobie got as much rejection as Robinson did. Right. Uh, well, he did, but you know, of course. Jackie started in spring training, and uh, so it started in uh, March and then in April, and um, and all the heat seemed to seemed to be on Jackie, and it was a little deflected uh, um, by Dobie when Dobie uh, came, um, and and uh, it, and Dobie makes an interesting uh, uh, point. He was the second black in two instances. He was the second. Black, uh, African-American manager. He became an interim manager for the White Sox. And the first African-American manager in Major League Baseball was Frank Robinson. Mm -hmm. So Dobie was second to two Robinsons. Where's Dobie now? Dobie now is uh, living in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, or around Patterson, New I Jersey, where he's he from. His, he saved his money. He saved his money. He's doing pretty well. He had a very good friend um, named the Joe Tobb, who was a former owner of the uh, New York of the New Jersey Nets, but who also made a lot of money uh, in computers, I believe it was, and uh, they were high school friends and they've stayed friends all along. And um, I think um, I think Taub uh, kind of looks after him. If if there's a problem, Taub is there for Dobie. Your interest is in people, as you said, and you write wonderfully about people. But the setting in which you examine people most often is sport. What is it about games? What is it about professional sport, or for that matter, college athletics, that somehow brings out the essence of the human drama and of the ultimate issues of human existence? Yeah. Well, you know, sports is theater, and and there's drama and there's humor. I mean, there's everything there, and it's what is going to. I mean, it's like a good novel. So that would mean what's going to happen next. I mean. What was more compelling, for example, than the Tyson Lennox Lewis fight? Mm. I mean, you know, Tyson is this, uh, uh, to some, can be evil incarnate. You know, Lennox is a nice guy, a skilled fighter, more skilled than he was had been given credit for, and yet this tension, how is how is it going to come out? You know, and then there's an aspect of character. And I, like, for example, Lennox Lewis demonstrated a, a, a particular character, and I thought he would. I thought that when Lennox Lewis gets serious, he lost two fights. He got knocked out once, and he uh, and there was a TKO. Uh, but he hadn't trained for these fights. And but when he when he takes it seriously, he's a very skilled fighter. Uh, Tyson is well beyond his best days. Um, 
And so, but you're looking at at these two. You know, it was good and evil in 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 many ways. Of course, some some boxing matches are that way. Um, but you you ask an interesting question about um, uh, you you don't know what's going to happen. Woody Allen in my book talks about uh, he's he's much more interested uh, in going to a a basketball game than he is in the theater because in the theater you know how it's going to turn out, um, and in basketball in a, in a really close game. It, it it never is that way. You, you know, the Romans said, I forget which Roman poet says it, in vino veritas, in wine there is truth. Right. Meaning when you get a little drunk, you show your true nature. Uh, one right. could almost say in extremis veritas. When right. up against extremity, up against challenge, up against right. difficulty and danger, war is one situation in, where the, right. in which that happens. Sport right. and sports contest is another. Yeah. That's when character shows. Right. right. Well, I uh, use the interesting word extremis. Uh, and I think the the close definition uh, uh, is uh, close to death or, or or near death and extreme. Mm -hmm. And and uh, yeah, um, sometimes some, some sometimes you feel like this is this is a life and death situation. Uh, when Ali was fighting Frazier in in the Philippines, um, he said that's the closest he's ever come to death. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're 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 putting yourself on the line. Uh, um, there is a matter of courage, but there's also a matter of skill. I mean, sometimes. Um, uh, there's a story I'd like to tell you about Jesse Barfield, uh, who was a, a player for the Toronto uh, Blue Jays, who is not in my book, um, but we're talking about character. And there was a, um, he was an outfielder, uh, and uh, George Bell, who was a teammate, had a great game, hit a couple of home runs. After the game, the reporters came to talk to George Bell. Susan Waldman was a is a, uh, a now uh, announces the, the Yankee games and is a uh, is a, a sports commentator in New York. But she was a brand new uh, on the beat and one of the few women on the beat. So she came in the locker room with her little uh, tape recorder, and George Bell saw her. And this was before women were accepted in the locker room. And he berated her and he said, "If you don't get out of here, I'm not talking to any women. Uh, I'm not gonna. If if she doesn't leave, I'm not talking to any of the press." Well, she didn't want to scotch a, 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 an interview for the rest of the guys. So she starts to walk out. J Jesse Barfield, who did not know her, says to a reporter nearby, uh, who is that? And so he's told that her name is Susan Walden. So Barfield calls where the other players can hear as well. And uh, he says, uh, Susan, she turns around, he said, uh, um, aren't you going to interview me? I had two hits today. Well, she thought at first he was he was part of just j uh, jibing at her, and uh, she wasn't sure. And he said, "Come on, sit down. I'll give you an interview." And so she walked over and she sat down and she got her interview with Jesse Barfield. Now, this took courage, as far as I'm concerned, on Jesse Barfield's part. Mm -hmm, it did he, indeed. Yeah, because he could have been castigated by the others, uh, mm. or 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 he could have been ridiculed, whatever it was. But I mean, here is an s here is an uh, a part of a character. Beyond the sports field, you know. You know, if you go back to Robinson starting with the Dodgers, mm -hmm. uh, some guys like Dixie Walker and a few others were very hostile, as I remember it. And I believe it was Pee Wee Reese who really extended the hand and sort of aligned himself. And that took some bravery on the right. part of Pee Wee Reese. Right. Well, I have a Pee Wee Reese piece in here about uh, and his relationship with uh, with Robinson oh. and. Um, uh, Lou, uh, Pee Wee Reese was from Louisville, and he grew up in a southern atmosphere. Sure. And, uh, as did Dixie Walker. As did Dixie Walker from Alabama. And uh, But uh, Pee Wee was the captain of the Dodgers, and he was in the Navy in 1945. 
and uh, he was told on a ship uh, that the Dodgers just signed a black player. He said, oh, really? What position does he play? Shortstop. Pee Wee Reese's position. He says, oh, no. Well, it turned out that, that, Pee -wee, that Jackie wasn't taking Pee Wee's position. He moved over to second base. Mm -hmm. but, um, but Pee Wee saw the, the racism and uh, uh, the, a human being, being being targeted in such a, a terrible way that, that he turned around and, uh, and put his arm in an important, an important game uh, before the game. Yeah. When there were death threats on Jackie Robinson, he put his arm around Jackie yeah, Robinson well, so everybody could see. It's a well-known scene. Um, you're too fascinating by far. I'm about 10 minutes late for the first batch of commercials. We'll take care of those. And I put you on notice. When we come back, I think the longest piece in the book is about none other than Michael Jordan. And, uh, of course, all the world is fascinated by Jordan, but no place more so than right here. Uh, and you've got some fascinating stories about the man and some very um, significant insights. So yeah. it will be uh, time for the Jordan analysis after these words. And once again, Ira Burkow is our guest tonight, the Pulitzer Prize-winning sports columnist for the New York Times. His newest book, which is a collection of some of his major pieces from the Times, over what, the last uh, five or seven years? Twenty years. years. Oh, some of them are as, yeah, as old as 20 years ago. Yeah. Indeed. Um, that book is titled The Minority Quarterback and Other Lives <clears throat> in Sports. The central life, um, not the cent they're all equally important, but the guy who gets the most pages in your book is Michael Jordan. Well, Michael Jordan is the, the quintessential uh, athlete of our time. And well, he's a godlike figure because we believe of him that he defies gravity. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, did, I have a piece uh, that I wrote in 88 in, in about him. And uh, at this point, I mean, he was, as we, as we say, at, at the height of his, uh, of his, not only of his career, not not his career at this at that point, but of his, certainly of his jumping ability. He was uh, Air Jordan. He was unlike Air Jordan. other men. He got went up in the air and he didn't really come down. Right, and um, uh, so I was interested in how he did it. So I called and I a, a couple of people and if you, if you don't mind, I'll I'll just read a couple of sentences. I, I urge here. you to do so. Yes. These experts trying to explain yeah, I the Jordan elevation are fascinating. Yeah, but how does Jordan do it, I asked. Lieutenant Colonel Douglas Kirkpatrick, the acting head of the Department of Astronautics at the Air Force Academy, has observed, uh, has observed Jordan on television. Quote, Michael Jordan has overcome the acceleration of gravity by the application of his muscle power in the vertical plane, thus producing a low-altitude Earth orbit. So I ask... What does all this mean in layman's terms? And Colonel Kirkpatrick answers, it means he's awesome. <laughs> um, and then um, there's a Dr. Lincoln Ford, a physiologist in the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago. And he observed that Jordan's, quote, center of gravity obeys the usual laws of physics and rises and falls as a parabolic function, like a rubber ball that bounces to a peak and then drops and the speed with which he's falling increases with the square of time. But he appears to be hanging up there in the air because he brings his body together with the ball and raises the ball as he's falling. It's a trick that sort of fools his opponents. He can do it because he's so strong, so quick, so coordinated, and has the right mental attitude. And I say, that's the answer, doctor? Possibly, he said. But one thing I'm sure of, something he does works, it works extremely well. So in other words, these people didn't know any more than I did. <laughs> Possibly he made a pact with the devil, you know, a Faustian sort of thing. Yeah, pact. well, there are other guys who can jump, who have been able to jump the way Michael Jordan jumps. 
And there are other guys with his, shockingly enough, there, not a lot, but there are others with his physical ability. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say Dominique Wilkins, for example, of, of those who were in the NBA. There are others who weren't in the, even in the NBA. Um, but Michael had something else. He lusted to succeed. And, and he, so apart from and, muscles, he had attitude. An attitude, and he had brains. Yeah. And he worked at it and worked at it, and uh, uh, practice was as serious to him as a game. And uh, he was just intense. There was the time um, when the Bulls were playing the Knicks in the playoffs. And one night, Michael Jordan, on an off night, went to Atlantic City to gamble. And it turned out he went with his father. His father was with him, James. And the next day, people got wind of Jordan having gone there, and uh, he didn't have a particularly good game the next night. And, and there was written in the papers, Jordan uh, is out late at night, uh, he was gambling, and he's got a problem. And uh, his father said, look, I was with him. He came back. He got 10 hours of sleep, so that wasn't a problem. As far as gambling is concerned, he my son does not have a gambling problem. If anything, he has a competitiveness problem. And uh, uh, Michael was competitive in anything he does. Uh, and, and he doesn't always succeed the way he did in basketball by far. Uh, he lost money gambling. He lost money uh, in golf. Uh, he thought he was a better golfer than he was. He thought he was a better baseball player than he was. But um, but it was basketball where he excelled, and it was basketball where he worked the hardest at. I learned from your piece on him that, though you don't directly say this, which I think you imply it, or at least you supply the material which leads me to the judgment, that he left basketball because of the murder of his father, and that he went into baseball in some part prompted by the fact that his father used to tell him he would do just as well in baseball as in basketball. Right. That's absolutely true. And even more to the point about the father's influence on Michael leaving basketball to go into baseball is that Michael wore number 21 in baseball. Number 21 was the number worn by Roberto Clemente. Roberto Clemente was Michael Jordan's father's favorite player. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went down to, uh, when Michael was uh, playing in class double-A ball uh, with the Birmingham Barons, and he wasn't really succeeding. And I remember sitting with him in the locker room, and there was a look in his eyes of confusion, I thought. It w the look was so different from the look he had when he was a basketball player. When it was, he was just brimming with confidence, and there was just this glare you know, that I can do anything I want. Well, the amazing thing is that having got the basket, the baseball out of the system, he came back and was better than ever. After yeah, yeah, he was. Um, and he won three three more championships. Incredible. But uh, what, let me just say one last thing about the, the difference in sports as far as baseball was concerned. That when um, you could stand at the batting cage with the, with the Birmingham Barons and you could turn your back to the batting cage and you would know when Michael Jordan was taking batting practice because the ball sounded softer when the bat hit it than it did for the other players. He did not have the bat speed, which you need, I guess you, it's, it's developed over a number of years, hmm. and now he's coming back and trying to play for a, a year or so. And he didn't have the bat speed. He didn't have that whippy 
that whip kind of thing. Yeah. That um, and meeting the ball way out front. And when he hit the ball, it was softer, you know. And when the other players hit it, there was a crack. Yeah. Um, and Michael never quite got it. Uh, but he did. But he did come back. And he was just phenomenal again. Um, and winning, he he won three championships. He retired to go into baseball. He won three championships again, and then uh, and then he retired again. A great novel, a great American novel by a sometime sport writer, uh, and uh, film writer, Bud Schulberg. Yeah. Was, was titled "What Makes Sammy Run." Right. What makes Michael run now that he's entering middle age? He's uh, he's still trying to play basketball, but obviously, that's not his future. He, uh, when he was in baseball uh, in Birmingham, and um, I said, uh, Michael, would you ever come back? And he said, the only reason I'd ever come back is to show the young guys that I can still do it. And he, he did that again just with the Washington Wizards. Now, how long you can do that? I mean, after a while, a certain sadness comes in, if not a sense of tragedy. So, I, uh, you know, he, he, he'll, he'll compete on something that he's he's really good and he and he was also I mean last year he came back he was 30 what 38 39 years old mm -hmm. and he was very good but his body did But this year the body is But but is it didn't up. it didn't hold up now uh there's there's a good chance he's going to he's going to try one more time Yeah you know uh, How much of that team I does I think I might want to shield my eyes this time How much of that team does he own He owns a small part of the team he was it was said that he was going to be a part owner but uh he doesn't own more than 10%, and it may be uh, considerably less than that. But the real question is, for him and for so many others in your book, is there life after the glory of high attainment in sports? Well, there was for Bill Bradley. <laughs> uh, now uh, now we don't know what Bill Bradley is going to be he doing. He did aspire to be president of the United States. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah, And um, with a few more speaking lessons, uh, he might have had a better shot I can at testify it. to that. He was on this program one night, Yeah, and he was rather stiff. He was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, it, the, the modulation in his voice. I mean, it's just uh, there's, uh, there, there's a, a, a dead wood sound when, he's, when he speaks, yeah. and it's, yeah. uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, yeah. You know, he's a character <coughs> in a lot of ways. I mean, he was, there's an eccentricity to Bill Bradley that a lot of people don't realize. Um, and I've always, I've known him for years, and I've liked him a lot. And, mm -hmm. um, and I was rooting for him. Uh, I thought if he gets in, into the White House, I, I might get a meal there. But most of these guys have been big in sport, and you focus on baseball in the first part of the book, then a video mm -hmm. on football and basketball. Mm -hmm. uh, the guys who've had their glory time um, and then are beyond it and are living uh, the non-athletic life, though they probably still go out on the golf course or right. play tennis or whatever, uh, some of them adapt very well and have fine lives. Others seem to sort of fall apart or disintegrate around the edges. Yeah, well, some have greater interests than others. Uh, mm -hmm. um, a fascinating case is Gil McDougald, who played uh, 10 years for the Yankees and was an outstanding player from 51 to 60. In fact, it, when he was a rookie in 1951, he won the American League Rookie of the Year. The guy who came in second was Mickey Mantle. Mm -hmm. So, um, but uh, and McDougal was on seven world championship teams in 10 years with the Yankees. And then he retired um, at the age of about 31 years old. Um, and he went into a business. He thought he, he didn't like to travel anymore. He had four kids at home. And he said, I can make more money doing something else. And, uh, and he got into a, a, a quite lucrative business. And then he became a, um, a coach at Fordham in his spare time, baseball coach at Fordham in his spare time. So he was someone who, uh, and he, he was very smart. 
um, and he he went to uh, San Francisco uh, University of San Francisco uh, didn't come didn't graduate but he learned uh, learned enough in school that he could he could make it through uh, life and uh, so he is is a case in point of someone uh, whose life didn't stop uh, after the game ended there's a very sad story in your book the uh, title of the piece is the strange tale of Eric s that's not somebody burning out uh, or coming apart uh, at the age of 50 when all the glory is gone but all the same it's a it shows uh, how if you're not prepared for it some loss of or some diminution of your powers can break you up as a person. Yeah, this was Eric Shaw, who was a pitcher with the Padres, and kind of a right-wing guy, and uh, member of the John Birch Society. John, member of John Birch Society, and would give uh, uh, speeches on being clean and everything. And then he got out of uh, he got out of baseball, and he got into drugs, of all things. And he he eventually died a, a drug addict in in a, in a rehab. He died center. only two years after his baseball career was over. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, and he pitched in the World Series. Yeah. Um, and he was uh, he's famous or infamous for having thrown the pitch that Pete Rose hit to break Ty Cobb's all-time uh, record for most hits in a, in a career. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Shaw was the pitcher. And uh, uh, I was there. And after the game, he wouldn't speak to the press. I mean, it was just, it was odd. I mean, he just gave up a hit. Um, there supposed to have been some absolutely, it's interesting you mentioned Ty Cobb because he had a reputation for being one of the most Unpleasant men in baseball. It was before your time, yeah. much before your time. Well, he was he was considered nuts by most people. Yeah. I mean, he was he 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 was twisted. He was twisted. Um, but he was, but he had this this lust, this burning desire uh, 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 to win as well. And uh, you know, you don't know all the motivations that go into something. I mean, Michael Jordan had said that he uh, he was motivated because. He was cut from the varsity as a as a sophomore. Uh, the story has often been that Michael was cut from the basketball team. He wasn't. He was cut from the varsity as a sophomore, and so he played on the sophomore team. But then in the following year, he played on the varsity. And the guy who beat him out was a guy, uh, his name was something, it wasn't Leon Smith, but it was something like that. And uh, to this day, Michael Jordan, when he goes into a hotel, he uses a false name, and it's the name of the guy who beat him out uh, for the for the the varsity when he was a sophomore. Now why would Michael uh, Jordan use any false name? Surely everybody would recognize yeah, Michael but, but, Jordan. Well, but I guess maybe people call the hotel there. Well, he's Michael Jordan there, oh, and you know uh, uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, but he still uh, uh, there's a motivation. But as far as Ty Cobb is concerned, um, Ty Cobb's uh, mother and father uh, were having a, a, a problem, and the father, who was a uh, a state representative, um, said he was leaving to go on a hunting trip took his rifle with him, and he believed that his wife was fooling around. Ty Cobb then was 10, 11, 12 years old, something like that. Anyway, he came back at night, and he thought that he saw someone in his bedroom with beyond his wife. Uh, and whether he did or not, I'm not sure, but he shot and killed his wife. Yeah. And apparently <coughs> this... This had such an Maybe impact. Maybe one settle a young mind. Yeah, and uh, and who knows what Ty Cobb was trying to, or why he was so so angry all his life. You know, does it go back to that kind of thing? Milton, you probably could tell me more about it than I did. I well, know, I think but, that uh, would have counted as a very traumatic experience. To absolutely, say the least. yeah. We pause for a quick round of commercials. When we return, um, 
there's a guy. What's his name? The great um, um, martial arts fellow who's in the movies. He's in your book. The one you take to Lutes. Oh, oh, Chuck. Um, Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. Yes. That's a charming little story. <laughs> I want <laughs> you to tell that story after we pause for these words. And we return to Ira Burkow. We are drawing from uh, his wonderful new book, The Minority Quarterback and Other Lives in Sports. That's published by Ivan R.D., which uh, is a very distinguished publishing house based here in Chicago. Uh, and you were once based here in Chicago. Were you well, born? I was born and raised in Chicago. Now, where were you born? And raised? I was born on the uh, on the west side, and uh, when I was 13, I moved to the north side. Uh, when uh, Isaiah Thomas was at uh, University Indiana University, and he was a sophomore, and they just won this, the the national uh, basketball championship, and uh, uh, so I went down to Bloomington to see if he was going to go pro, and to do a story on him. And he was deciding. In fact, he was sort of like hiding out, and he wouldn't talk to Bobby Knight. And but Bobby Knight, I guess, knew that he was going to turn pro, and he did. And I went to see him. I found him. We began talking, and I said, um, "I said, where are you from, uh, Isaiah?" He said, "I'm from Chicago." And I said, "I know, I know where you're from, Chicago, but but where?" He said, "The West Side." I said, well, "I know you're from the West Side, but exactly where?" He said, "Well, Congress Parkway. We lived on Congress Parkway." I said, Isaiah, exactly where were you from? Congress on Congress Parkway. Congress in St. Louis, Congress in Lawndale, Congress in Millard, uh, 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 Congress in uh, Lawndale, uh, Congress in Avery. I mean, exactly where were you from? And he looked at me and said, oh, my God. He says, you did tremendous research on this. I said, no, I'm from the neighborhood. <laughs> A few years earlier than he than he was, but, uh, but yeah, I'm from uh, Chicago. I made reference before to your dinner with Chuck Norris at Lutes. We mm -hmm. should explain that Lutes was, in those days, probably still is, one of the top restaurants. One of the great French restaurants. Yeah. Of New York. Right, yeah, in the country. And Chuck Norris is the guy who keeps sort of smashing faces with his heels. Yeah, yeah. Well, I describe Chuck Norris as uh, uh, he, he kicks people for a living. Yeah. And uh, uh, I got a call from the, um, uh, the uh, arts and leisure section of the Times, and uh, the style section, and they were doing a series on... Take on at lunch with or at dinner with a celebrity, and they called me and they said, "Would would you do something with uh, Chuck Norris at lunch with or at dinner with?" I didn't know. I had heard the name Chuck Norris, but I didn't follow Chuck Norris. I didn't see any of his television. I really didn't know what he did. I said, "Well, I, I don't know anything about him. I'm not that interested." They said, well, "Look, this would be really fascinating. He, he, this is what he's about." The guy, the editor, told me. I said, "Okay." I said, "So." Where would be the unlikeliest place to take this guy, you know? And I mean, I don't want to take him to a Tex-Mex place or something, and because um, he's from the Southwest. And so I thought, well, I'll take him to Lutes. It's a great French restaurant. So I do. We it's really a place that he's never been to. He'd before. never been to it. Uh, I don't. He had never been to a French restaurant before. Really? Yeah. And so we walk in this very classy place. And the and the kitchen is right nearby, sort of in the front. It was unusual, but the kitchen was sort of in the front. And, and the maitre d uh, and 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 the waiters and the kitchen help. As soon as he walks in, word spread immediately, and everyone starts looking. Oh my God, because they all seen this guy on television. So and, he, and in movies. Well, and, and, I'm yeah. sorry. And in, 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 in the movies movie. played on television. Right. Yeah. Right. So so we go to sit down, and no one comes to wait on us. So I look around, and then there's the owner, Andre Soltner, 
with his toque, the big white hat, yeah. the, the chef's hat. And he owns a place, but he also is the chef. He walks over with a pad and pencil, and he says in his French accent, uh, excuse me, but all of my waiters are afraid to talk to Chuck Norris. <laughs> so it's up to me now to take the order. <laughs> and... Um, and, and he, he did. And he, he made some haute cuisine suggestions. Yeah, he made some haute cuisine suggestions. Chuck wanted a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turned out. And so then there was so we ate. When he, he, I said, well, you got to try some stuff. You know, he tried a few things. And then Ben Soldner comes back later, and he, he's telling about his desserts, these famous, great, you know, incredible desserts. He said, no, nah, I don't really eat desserts. I said, Chuck, you got to try a dessert, you know, a little <laughs> chocolate something, you know, even a taste. <laughs> so, and he did, and... Um, and that was we had a good time. It was it was a lot of fun doing it. He seems a rather mild, pleasant guy. He projects mm -hmm. that even in his movie performances. Yeah, and I and I've I've seen who, him. Who occasionally uh, erupts in uh, right in, in physical attack, and then he <laughs> yeah right. But I've noticed I I've seen now a few of, the, of his shows. He doesn't really talk very much. No. He sort of like grunts, and says yeah or ma'am or something. Well, you quote him as telling you that Steve McQueen. Well, something to do with his first getting into movies gave him some crucial advice after his first movie. You don't remember no, your own piece. McQueen said that was what a pretty... What did he say? What did he say? That was a pretty good I'm performance. I'm interested. Tell me. That was a pretty good performance, but you talk too much. Oh, is that what he said? According to you. Well, yeah, right. Well, that, that, uh, that's what he told me then. But, uh, yeah, well, he stopped talking. He took the advice yeah. and, just, and, and stopped talking. Um, but he... Uh, I, 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 my guess is he's never gone back to a French restaurant. I guess that. Yeah. I want to switch to somebody very different. And mm -hmm. you did a piece in the Times just the other day mm -hmm. uh, about Ted Williams. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really one of the two or three greatest figures in the history of baseball, wouldn't you? Sir? Oh, yeah. Um, he, I mean, he, Babe Ruth, uh, I, I guess the DiMaggio. Uh, but, but he had such electricity. And uh, I, I, in, the, in the column, I write about first seeing him at Comiskey Park uh, when I was a boy. And he's in the on-deck circle. And uh, he was waggling the bat, and uh, I described him as, as, and he was studying the pitcher. And uh, I thought he looked like a, a tiger in the bushes about to, you know, to pounce on his unsuspecting lunch. And um, it, then when he came up to the plate, his, his wrists were moving, and he just had such intensity. And, uh, and he just would whack the ball. And then I got to know him years later when he was a manager of the Washington Senators. Mm -hmm. And uh, and we 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 had a a, a really nice a, a relationship, but um, you know, and I knew about him being a, a fighter pilot in World War One uh, two and uh, he lost four years out of his career, about almost five years out of his yeah. career. And uh, but I w sometimes I, I like the side things, this, the 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 hidden moments in a way of of some of these people, and we know all of the statistics and all of his home run stuff and all the and uh, some of the controversial stuff. But when I think of Ted Williams, I think of uh, when he was a manager of the Senators. I was uh, a young uh, reporter, and uh, I was sitting in the dugout with him talking. And previously, a few years earlier, I had worked in Minneapolis for the Minneapolis Tribune. And years earlier, in, uh, this is now 1969, in 1938, Williams had played for the Minneapolis Millers. Okay. And in uh, 65, 66, I was with the Minneapolis Tribune. So now in, I'm in Pompano Beach, uh, Florida, where Washington Senators have spring training, and I'm sitting with Williams. 
and out of the corner of his eye, he sees an elderly man coming down the steps of the dugout. And he says, like under his breath, half to me, because I'm at his right, he says, I, I know that guy. I can't think of his name. I know that guy. Well, he was a guy who worked for the Minneapolis Star, was a sports editor of the Minneapolis Star, which was the sister paper of the Minneapolis Tribune. And I knew him. And I said, his name is Charlie Johnson. And he said, that's right. And William stood up and said, Charlie, how are you? I haven't seen you in years. How you doing? Well, here's Ted Williams remembering Charlie Johnson. Charlie, you just saw he expanded, you know, and uh, and th and thrilled, you yeah, know. Sure. But this this to me was Ted Williams. I mean, he was he was a genuine uh, 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 person, uh, an intelligent person, and a feeling person, and um, you know he. He worked very hard for, for, for cancer, for the Jimmy Fund in, in Boston, and, um, and he was active, and he did so much that what was never in the newspapers. He didn't want it in the newspapers. He was a man of considerable dignity, um, and he didn't uh, wear his personality on his sleeve, so to speak. He, didn't, he wasn't a crowd pleaser, except by the high quality of his performance. Yeah. Um, he liked the smaller people. He liked... Um, he liked going fishing, and uh, mm -hmm. after he retired, um, although he was friendly with the Bushes, because I, I talked about, the last time I spoke to him was about two years ago, we were uh, driving in a limousine going to, uh, from New York to, uh, he was going to appear at Yogi Berra's uh, Museum and Learning Center in Montclair, <laughs> as part of Montclair mm -hmm. State University. Yogi Berra has a learning center. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and we were talking. He was talking about uh, he liked the Bushes very much. He, his politics were uh, were con were fairly conservative and and right wing. Um, they are signaling me from the uh, control room. I'm late for commercials, yeah. uh, which happens all the time when you have a really good guest here. So we pause. We'll be back in just a few minutes to Ira Burkow, Burkow of the Times. First, these words, and we return to Ira Burkow to go beyond your book for a moment and to go to tonight's event, the All Star Game. Maybe I shouldn't mention it. It might send some of our listeners over to the television set. But I can give them a bulletin. The score at the moment is 5-3. Uh, in seventh inning, National yeah. League is ahead. That's all they need. That's really all they need. Um, but just today, uh, and, uh, a column by Charles Krauthammer, who is one of the columnists I really um, admire. And, uh, uh, and I put it up on our website. We've got a website which has a, one department called Milt's File. We put up some four or five things every day, stories, mostly having to do with international affairs and arms policy and uh, the war on terrorism and economic issues and so on. But Krauthammer had a column in the Washington Post, it was yesterday or today, I'm not sure, but I put it up on the file today, um, in which he says, if they are foolish enough to go on strike, that will be the end of baseball, because baseball essentially is a sport followed by older people like me, and uh, we have just, will have had it with them and we just won't go anymore if they don't complete this season if they kill it with a strike do you agree? i don't believe that i don't believe that uh... i mean they keep saying i mean for years i grew up thinking well uh, people saying well baseball is doomed uh... uh... this is wrong with it that's wrong with it uh... but marvin miller who was the executive director of the players uh... association a brilliant brilliant guy He's, He's the one who opened the world to million and multi-million dollar salaries. Right, and the end of the uh, uh, he helped uh, um, finish off the reserve clause. Yeah. And uh, but Marvin had has said that um, that baseball is such a great game. 
even the the stupid owners can't kill it. And um, um, I mean, you just think about uh, yeah, in '94 there was no World Series, and people were saying, "I'm never going back." Uh, there was a strike in 72. I remember people saying, I'm never going to go to another game. Uh, but then they come back and they, they start breaking attendance records. And, uh, uh, and then Sosa and Maguire are going for the home run record. This is exciting. Now, uh, what happens if there's, there's no World Series this year and everyone's saying, the hell with it. I'm not going to be interested. I'm not going to any more games. And now you get two guys who you just picked two. There's a guy, Sweeney, my, uh, for Kansas City, now who's leading in, uh, in, in hitting. Uh, and you get uh, Helton of, uh, of uh, Colorado Rockies. And what if, like, two guys, two guys are going uh, for, for, to, to hit 400 um, to, to surpass Ted Williams or equal Ted Williams? I mean, the excitement's fantastic. Or you get some young pitcher, uh, even a Clemens or someone else, who's going to uh, win 30 games. We, we haven't had, there hasn't been a 30-game winner since McLean in, in 1968, won 31 games. Uh, what if someone is, is going for something like that? What if someone's going to go for 40 wins? I mean, anything is possible. It's going to make excitement. People are going to come back. It's it, uh, And so baseball is just... And as far as the kids are concerned, kids still love this stuff. They still trade cards. Um, you go to games, uh, and, and there are kids running around with their baseball gloves. Um, there's something magic, magical about going to the baseball game. The, you know, the, the more, green more, and, 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 and the whole, so the whole the, atmosphere. Is the, atmosphere. the magic more than the magic of the other sports? I think so. Uh, well, basketball is, is fun. I mean, and uh, in football they wear the helmets, and uh, I think there's a little bit less of that. Uh, it's cold weather. Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think that um, and baseball just keeps uh, is such a part of us for for such a long period of time. And the statistics are fun, and and uh, uh, you can follow that. And 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 they're the playing cards, and the games are on television. I I think baseball is here to stay. Sorry, Charles. Can't be killed. <laughs> not not in our lifetime. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Okay. I am glad to hear it. Um, we will be going to the phones in a while for your questions about uh, just about every figure in sports, major or minor, and about uh, sports writing and about uh, uh, life as a major figure on the journalistic side of the American sports scene. Uh, for any and all such questions and or comments, the phone number is, as ever, 591-7200, 591-7200. The lines are open right now. Get your calls in. If you don't mind waiting just a bit, we will be getting to you shortly. 591-7200, um, a number of characters that you've got in here, or persons, I should say, rather than characters, some of them admirable, most of them uh, having good human qualities, I think, though some are a little bit on the, yeah, on I, the shady side. I think... Um Marge Schott, who is a former owner yes, of, of the Reds, uh, <clears throat> is a little of uh, a little odd, I think. And um, and I, in fact, I was instrumental in a way in getting her suspended from baseball. What and, was your role in that? And, and happened this way, I went down to. She was given to racist comments. Well, I, I went down to uh, Cincinnati to do a story on her. Mm -hmm. Spent the day with her. And she was driving. She owned a, a couple of uh, car dealerships, and she was driving me. We were uh, going to a breakfast, actually. I met her, and we were going to go to breakfast. She was driving. <clears throat> and we're driving down the street, and there had been an election shortly before this in Cincinnati, like for a state representative. And uh, there's a little picket sign in, in front of uh, a, um, a campaign sign in front of someone's home that hadn't been taken down. 
And the person running for the uh, office was named Garbles, Joey B B E L S. Mm -hmm. So I called attention to that, and somehow then we just got onto uh, Nazi Germany. And she's her family is German, and uh, she said, well, during the war, uh, she had some family there, and it was hard. Uh, food wasn't all that available, and it was a little difficult. And then she said, she was just thinking, then she said, well, you know, Hitler, Hitler was good in the beginning, but he went too far. And with the, I was struck by this, of course. And it was early in the day, and I wasn't about to challenge her because I didn't want to end the, the interview. And I was tempted to say, well, gone too far. What's too far? One million? Two million? Three million? What's too far? But uh, I quoted her uh, saying that, and um, uh, with a, li a, 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 a list of a few other things that, uh, that she did that, um, that were intemperate at least, uh, she was suspended from baseball, and in the catalog of reasons why she's being suspended from baseball, one of those was the, the Hitler remark. But she had done some other pretty peculiar things with the team itself, or towards yeah, the plate. Yeah, well, well, she was she was cheap and she was stupid, really, about a lot of things. And um, uh, and they, she got the team when her husband died. She I got mean, the team. He, he was the owner. Right, and yeah. then so she took it over, but she didn't know what she was doing. And yeah. uh, but actually, they won a uh, a championship uh, with with her as the owner of the team. But. Um, she also did things like, I mean, just the players thought she was out of her mind in many instances. I mean, she had these, these big dogs, these big St. Bernard. Yeah, I remember and, that. And they would, she would take them onto the field, and they would poop on the field. Mm -hmm. And the players had to, like, dodge around the poop. And so when, when she heard that the players uh, complained, she said, they're lucky that I don't have a horse. Oh, dear. <laughs> Rather a stupid, vulgar woman. Right. But assured in her own stupidity. Yes. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She's not, but but she's finally uh, they forced her out. Uh, to, they forced her to sell the team. Things have mended with the Yankees. The famous owner, who was named George Steinbrenner, blocking, uh, Steinbrenner, gets along better with his teams than he used to. Is that right? Well, you know, he's in his seventies. I guess he's mellowing. I see. I guess he's mellowing, and uh, um, he got a very good manager in Torrey. They're yeah. winning a lot, and uh, so he's. He's not as as nutty as he used to be. Uh, I mean, he would scare the hell out of. Uh, it, it was very hard to work for for George Steinbrenner, and mm -hmm. some of the most difficult people uh, uh, who found the most difficult were the public relations guys. If the Times were sending you to Moscow next week to be the head of the Moscow bureau, saying enough with sports, let's do some foreign affairs reporting right now, and you had a week uh, to uh, indulge your sports proclivities, how would you spend that week? How would I spend? Mean and, and who I, who I, I would I cover? And uh, well, what, what games would you go to? What uh, sports would would well, you I like pursue? I, well, I probably basketball. Basketball. I, yeah, I like I like basketball, and I uh, I played through the years. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and um, it, but, uh, so if we were in season, you you'd go down to the Knicks game every yeah. night. Well, I I, I would uh, the Nets right now. I mean, Jason Kidd is one of my favorite players. I mean, uh, uh -huh. he, he's the great guard and. Uh, um, his passing, he's, he's a wizard, and he's just so smart. Uh, I mean, he is, he is of the caliber of, of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird in our time, um, who were just such, such all-around smart players. I exclude Michael because Michael had such phenomenal uh, physical abilities. But, um, yeah, I would, I would watch. I would do that. Uh, I, I, actually, I would probably spend more time avoiding some sports. Soccer. 
You find it <laughs> flat, dull, right. stale, and unprofitable. Yeah. Hockey. You know, hockey, uh, yes. yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, agree with you on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, my feeling about hockey is, I mean, it, it seems it's it's just a uh, um, a reason for these people to hit each other over the head with sticks. Yeah. You know, and, and it's uh, a tangle of bodies until eventually yeah, some puck gets through to the net. And right, and well, it's the same in soccer. You know, so eventually yeah, someone yeah. kicks kicks a ball in, and then they go crazy. They start yeah. running around, they ripping off their shirts. Yeah. Um, it was it's it's like they've they've over uh, overturned a, a despot or something. Well, like. part of the soccer game is the soccer hooliganism that follows. Yeah. Uh, during yeah. and after the game. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that that's right. They, they they love it. Well, and there's hooliganism in the. Uh, in the uh, in hockey too. I mean the yeah. um, uh, the fans are vicious. Yeah. And I mean the, and and they'll holler the most. Well, while players epithets. bang at one another, uh, then viewers bang at one another. That's right. One way or the other. Yeah. So it's. Uh, it's interesting that you say that directly and yeah. you confess that you don't like hockey or soccer. Yeah. What else don't you like? How do you feel about tennis? Um, I used to like tennis more when they had the wooden rackets. Uh -huh. uh, it was a different game, and uh, I mean now the serves are just stupendous. Uh, but I loved I loved people like Pancho Gonzalez and Rod mm -hmm. Laver. Uh, loved watching them play. Yeah. I liked McEnroe. You know, I mean, uh, I mean w it, when he wasn't erupting uh, and, and and making an idiot making an a, idiot out of himself. He was a broadcaster at Wimbledon the other he's day. He's right? very he's a very good broadcaster. He he's a very good broadcaster. Yeah. He's very direct. Uh, you know, very knowledgeable, and uh, and he'll say anything. You know, which is which is usually fun. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, but as a, but and the women, uh, uh, we have the we have the Williams sisters now. Yeah. yeah. And the Williams sisters are like the Yankees. You know, they just win all the time. And uh, uh, will it get boring? Um, I think that um, there was a a point when uh, when we thought the Williams one of the Williams sisters was going to tank it for the other Williams sister. Mm -hmm. But now after Wimbledon, when they played so hard and so well together. Um, that it, it it was exciting tennis. I've got a favorite sport that you haven't even mentioned. Oh, it's the one in which I participated uh, when I was a young man, in both high school and college. One can't really call it a single sport; it's a sports scene, namely um, a field and track. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I don't know of anything that really is more satisfying on a pleasant autumn afternoon than to go to a track meet if you can find a good one. Right. Um, which you usually can't, of course. Yeah. Well, it, it, during the Olympics, I mean, the only time I've gone to the track Olympics meets is when was, you see was the Olympics. A lot of track, and yeah. and I, uh, I loved uh, the javelin, the the discus, the hammer throw. All of those. I mean, all those field were, events. Yeah. I was, I was a pole vaulter. Oh, were you? And a poor one. I, um, I usually didn't get over the bar, but I was always uh, reliably expected to come down. <laughs> however far, however high up on I the got, same side of the bar that you went up, up in, yeah. No, just as often on the same side as on the other yeah, side. Yeah, I to me, uh, to me, pole vaulting looks like it's such a difficult thing to it, do. Well, it is. That's why I did it so poorly, but still, it was it, a great inspiration. What was your best height? Oh, my best height was about eleven, or eleven two, or and something. And this was like with that. the bamboo. It was bamboo in those days, mm -hmm. yes. But Cornelius. So Corn you weren't Cornelius. Oh, Cornelius Warmer Dam broke. Was it fourteen or fifteen? Do you remember? Oh, I think it was 15. It was 15. I think so, yeah. With the bamboo pole. Yeah. They had done that a few, just right. a few years before. Right. But now the yeah. sport has, has changed so much. With well, now with that uh, plastic thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're well, going, what, 19 feet? Yeah, or something. they're about. Yeah. I don't know what the They've got a woman who's going. Though I, I ran a little, too, oh. uh, in relays. Um, uh, New York City, where I grew up and where uh -huh. you worked for many years, uh -huh. is a great um, track town mm -hmm. uh, among yeah. the colleges, that is. Right, right. Still, They all maintain very active 
Right, well, the Melrose Games was a bit. Well, Chicago yeah. used to have some some important yeah. uh, uh, track and uh, track meets. Yep, and another great one was the Penn Relays, which was uh -huh. just you know down the railroad a piece right. uh, uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, but that is neither here nor there. What is here at the moment is the moment for another set of commercials. Then I think we will be going to the phones. So, um, once again, an invitation to give us a call for your questions, comments, and opening up yet other areas of sports speculation or sport reportage, including uh, questions about some of the great figures in modern uh, athletic competition. Uh, we expect that from you, and you do that by calling us up on 591-7200, 591-7200. If you're one of our internet listeners and listening to the program uh, far away from Chicago, uh, as on either coast or in another country, if you'd rather reach us via email, the email is available to you as well. The email address, extension720, as one word, extension720, at tribune.com, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Or 591-7200. Get your calls and emails in. We'll be right with you after this. And we're about to go to the telephones for your questions and comments to Ira Burkow, who is, if I may take just a moment to say so, um, certainly America's leading sports columnist these days, published on a regular basis uh, in a major American newspaper. And, of course, you're part of a distinguished lineage, aren't you? Your immediate predecessor was, was it Red Smith? Red Smith. Yeah, about mm -hmm. whom you then did a biography. Right. Which we talked right. about on this program. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, when I was in college at Miami of Ohio and just starting to write, and I got on the school paper, I was going to be a lawyer, and then I just, yeah. I just uh, started writing on the school paper, and... Uh, and uh, sports by a quirk, and uh, and I just thought, gee, this is fun. And uh, I remember reading Red in the Chicago Sometimes, and I thought, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna write Red Smith and and send him a couple a few of my uh, my pieces, and we developed a correspondence, and uh, and lo and behold, a uh, number of years later, uh, we 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 crossed paths and worked together for nine months at the at the New York Times before before he died. Yeah. And uh, and then I eventually wrote uh, I wrote the obituary for him when he died, uh, his obituary. And uh, which ran the front page of the Times, and um, and then uh, I did the, the biography. Uh, if you want to join us, the phone number is of course five nine one seventy two hundred five nine one seven two zero zero. The lines are open. Uh, the area code, if you're calling long distance, is three one two, then five nine one seventy two hundred. And for email, uh, the email address extension seven twenty, extension seven two zero as one word at tribune dot com. And we will go to the phones first. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Ira, I've uh, enjoyed uh, a great deal of your writing. Thank but, you. Uh, but one of the things that, that makes the New York Times so wonderful is the uh, their decision to write the portraits of the short biographies of the pers people who died in 9-11. Right. And I was wondering, uh, did you write any of those? And, and how did that come to be that the, this, the New York Times made that decision to do that writing? Uh, I didn't. That's an interesting question. I I didn't do uh, any of them. There were a number of uh, staff writers who did, that, and they're continuing, by the way. Uh, they're going to continue probably into next year. Uh, I think they they run them on Sundays, and um, they were just going to do obituaries, but there were so many of them. Uh, uh, they just decided to make them shorter and make the, and make them tributes uh, uh, to all these people. And uh, a book has come out not long ago. Uh, I think it's called, I believe it's called Tributes 9/11, and uh, it's been hugely, hugely popular. This uh, what what they've done, and uh, and I know people who've, who re who've read every one of them, and uh, the tears flow. 
Right, it's called portraits, and, and I. Oh, it's uh, portraits. Okay, portraits, not eleven, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I make it a, a policy to read the half a dozen before I go to bed every night, because oh. to, just to read. Uh, just to to learn about the people who passed away, and it, the writing is fantastic yeah. because it's not maudlin. It, it's about the people and the, the lives they lead, and and the right. writers got so much of it in just four or five paragraphs. Yeah, that it was a wonderful piece of writing by everyone in New York Times, and they should be congratulated. Yeah, well, a, a number of them are are, are upbeat, really, just uh, yes, dealing with yes. uh, with what these people liked to do and uh, and the positive aspects of them. Sir, thank you for yeah, the call. Thank you. thank you. Glad to have heard from you. Five nine one seventy two hundred. We have. At the moment, more email than we have phones, so get those calls in. 5917200. Email, here's one from Queens, New York. Um, Good evening, Milt. What does Ira Burkow think of the domination of golf's major championships by Tiger Woods in recent years? And then thanks for a consistently superb program. I'm glad to hear that from a listener in Queens, New York, who's on the Internet. Yes, sir. Your yeah. response. Uh, I would, would you send your son to be a golf champion? To aspire to be a golf champion now, when Tiger Woods oh, no. has it sewed up for the next well, thirty well, years. Well, well, yes. I mean, uh, you know, you can make a lot of money in golf and, without winning a championship. Look That's at, true. Uh, look at Phil Mickelson. Uh -huh. You know, uh, winning a major championship anyway. Um, I think Tiger is exciting because he's so good, and uh, uh, you know, I mean, but not everything, not not all of the the tournaments are surefire for him. I mean, he has to make those putts. He has to come out of the rough. He's flubbed one or two tournaments. He has, time. he has. But I mean, and 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 it's amazing just to watch him. It, you can see his brain working when you're watching him. I mean, he's just, uh, um, and you know his his work ethic is very much like Michael Jordan's work ethic. I was about uh, to ask you, Jordan's yeah. ultimate excellence in one sport, and Wood seems to be setting a new quality of excellence in another sport, is there anything in common between the two? Yeah, I mean, um, um, uh, Tiger uh, misses a, a putt uh, in the third round that he felt he should have made. And he goes out, uh, the, uh, the, the round ends at, what, 6 o'clock, something like that, and he's putting, or if, or, or if there's a, an iron he wants to hit, I mean, he's there two, three hours afterward working on this. Now, uh, uh, one day at the Berto Center, where the Bulls uh, used to train, and uh, they were going to be playing the Knicks in the playoffs, and uh, Jordan was suffering with a bad shoulder, right shoulder, and there was a thought he's not going to be able to shoot in the game. What's he going to do, and will he play? So I go to the Berto Center, and I see Jordan there. He's shooting by himself, and he's shooting. And I thought, my God, there's no problem with his shoulder. Until I realized he was shooting left-handed, he was working on his left-handed shot, and it looked good. Uh, in case he couldn't shoot right-handed, I mean, that, it was that to me that was that was an amazing thing to see. Hmm. And uh, Tiger's like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know the guy personally? You've interviewed him, talked to him. Tiger. Yeah. No, I've been around him. I I don't know him personally. Uh, you know, not near, not in anything uh, near to the way I knew uh, I know Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who are some of the athletes that have just become for you not merely interesting people worth writing about, but uh, uh, but warm and significant friends? Um, Arthur Ashe. Tell you you write about him in a very yeah, moving way. In this yeah, book. Arthur uh, was just you know there, there's a, a Yiddish word mensch, mm -hmm. you know, which is the highest praise. Yeah, he and, faced uh, he faced death and he faced it with great dignity. Yeah, he 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 did. Um, 
uh, Martina Navratilova. Really? Uh, I thought she was a classy woman, and uh, uh, she was a homosexual, and eventually, you know, it came out. Uh, but um, um, I remember um, going with Martina. Um, a, a public relations guy said, "There's this young tennis player. This is in the, in the mid '70s. There's this young tennis player from Czechoslovakia." And uh, he said, uh, I think she's going to be something one day, so let's have dinner. We went to the, the plaza, the uh, oak room in the plaza for dinner, and it was a very uh, elegant uh, setting. And here's this young Czech girl. I think she was 16, 17 years old. And so she orders a steak, and uh, they bring the steak. And she looks at the steak, and she says, uh, too well done. Send it back. So, and um, so they bring another steak, too well done, send it back. It was, the third steak was okay. And, this, you know, I mean, then I realized, oh, my God, I mean, she has a real self-possession. There's a will there. There's a real, and, 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 and I bring this up because I'm reminded of this. There was this great relief pitcher, Goose Gossage. You may have oh, remember yes, Goose Gossage. Oh, yes, I remember Goose the White Sox. But he was when he was with the Yankees, uh, and he was fearsome. Uh, he threw the ball so hard, and batters were afraid of him, and uh, and people were afraid of Goose Gossage. So, and he's a nice guy. And uh, in the Yankee clubhouse, I sat down, I'm talking to him, and I said, Goose, everybody's afraid of you. Who are you afraid of? He thought for a minute, and he said, New York waiters. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and, and this was 10, 12 years ago, and I just uh -huh. saw him at the old-timers game, and, uh -huh. I, and, uh, and he had forgotten he had said this, and I told him, New York waiters, and he smiled. He said, "I still fear them," <laughs> but but I'm reminded of this because they can be intimidating in in a really nice setting. And here is Martina Navratilova with tremendous self possession. She wasn't even a citizen. She's a 17 year old girl. No, I, this is an interesting side light. I, I'm a native New Yorker, as you know, but uh, I've done most of my serious eating, I suppose, away from New York, except for occasional trips back. What's intimidating about New York waiters? Oh well, I guess it's like uh, French waiters. I mean, uh, this is it. I mean, you know, you go into a, a French restaurant somehow, and it just uh, there's there's a certain uh, uh, seeming elegance or sophistication uh -huh. uh, that is intimidating. Um, uh, the first time uh, my wife Dolly and I went to uh, uh, it was way out in the country someplace, a four-star, was well, three-star restaurant, and uh, a Michelin three-star restaurant mm -hmm. in in France, and we went in there and. Um, and there was like uh, you know three waiters for for uh, for every uh, every uh, serving, and uh, it was just uh, and the forks and the knives were all over the place. You you know, you, know you, you weren't quite sure which ones to use. And after about 20 minutes, uh, my wife turns to me and she says, "Why are we whispering?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, a high French restaurant can intimidate you. Particularly if they lay on all the all the old-fashioned flummery. Right, and but, and and also. And there if, are there are such restaurants in New Right, York, and also right. if 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 you don't read French in the menu, is totally in French. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this could be a problem. Then you're you're naturally one down. Right, yeah. right, right. Five nine one seventy two hundred is our number. We pause for some messages and then directly back to the calls and to the email. The email address extension seven twenty at tribune dot com. And about that audio archive of ours. Um, as you've heard, we take some programs, not all of them, we put them up so that they can be heard again. Uh, you can listen to them again, or you can direct somebody to listen to them, uh, to listen to a particular program who may have missed it. I hereby announce that on our audio archive, 
uh, within a few days, we will place this conversation with Ira Burkow. Uh, you get to it by going to WGNRadio.com, and then you click on my name on the uh, left side of the front page of the GN uh, website is a list of all of the broadcasters. Click on uh, my name. That takes you directly to our uh, sub-site, so to speak, where you have many choices. The audio archive is one of them. Milt's file is another. Uh, and uh, a photo gallery of all sorts of interesting people, uh, presidents, prime ministers, uh, uh, Hollywood stars, and my grandchildren uh, can be seen quite easily on that uh, particular portion of the website. Uh, and with that, we will go back to Ira Burkow, author of The Minority Quarterback and Other Lives in Sports, uh, one of the leading sports writers in the country, and of course, uh, the sports columnist and sports feature writer for the New York Times. 591-7200 is the number. You are the next caller. Good evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello. Uh, Mr. Burke, I was wondering, do you see a, a definite style in writing, let's say with East Coast writers, West Coast and Midwestern writers? You mean sports writers particularly, sir? Yeah, sports writers, yes. Um, I don't, I, I'd have to say no. Uh, good writers are good writers, and bad writers are bad writers. And uh, um, I know that, uh, you know, I go around the country, and, I'm, and I don't see the difference in necessarily in styles. They're just some, you know, individuals writing individually. Uh, so uh, it's a good question. But I, well, I, I think years ago, I think there was more of a style. Uh, back when your Murrays and your uh, Reds were around, well, but, there, there was more of a style back then. Well, but uh, there weren't there weren't too many Red Smiths uh, writing uh, in, in New York, and there and there weren't too many Jim Murrays. I mean, these these uh, these people um, had very distinctive styles, and uh, there were people who attempted to imitate them. Um, but they they didn't they generally didn't last very long. You write appreciatively also of a guy I used to like a lot. He did sports writing, but he did other things also. Jimmy Cannon. Oh, I love Jimmy Cannon, and uh, uh, he was funny. I enjoyed. And I, 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 enjoyed I, I never knew that Mike Wallace anecdote until I ran across it in your book. Do you remember it? About a, a Cannon. Yeah, no. Cannon's being interviewed by Wallace, and Wallace says, "How come you've never been married?" No, I don't remember this. And you say that Cannon's answer was, how come you've been married three times? For the same reason you've been married three times. Oh, right. Well, Jimmy was, um, uh, I love being around. It, 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 you know, he, he was really distinctive as well. And, uh, you know, you talk about styles. I mean, Red Smith and Jimmy Cannon writing in, and Arthur Daly writing in the, in, in the uh, uh, same city, three different newspapers, and three totally different styles. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there was, you know, a New York style. Uh, uh, there may be that um, in, in smaller papers or smaller towns, you had to be more of a homer, possibly, than in the larger cities, and that might be reflected in, in the writing. Um, but you talk about Jimmy Cannon and, um, you know, the uh, uh, his uh, nobody asked me but, uh, and he had these insights, these one-liners, and uh, but uh, I remember once um, standing outside of uh, the Hilton Hotel in um, in Miami and uh, Miami Beach, and we were uh, waiting to be picked up with the rest of the press corps uh, to go to a Super Bowl game. It was about 1972 or 73, and uh, it was a beautiful sunny day on a Sunday. It was about 11 o'clock, and um, 
over to the right coming down Collins Avenue toward us were about uh, two or three families on bicycles in their little white shorts and, uh, and their picnic baskets and their uh, uh, and their drive coming toward us and uh, Jimmy Cannon the turns to me and out of the side of his mouth and he says Jesus Christ look what inflation has done to the hell's angels <laughs> <laughs> but Jimmy was full of stuff like that and I mean he didn't laugh I mean it was just yeah. uh, I mean this was his joke but I mean um, well the style is cynical New York cynical you know yeah. just cynical New York yeah. Yeah, and Jimmy was that way 591-7200 our number here is the next caller good evening hi yes sir uh, I'd like to ask the uh, columnists, sports columnists, are they trying to be controversy or create controversy rather than report what's going on? Uh, for instance, with uh, Don Beller, uh, months ago I see columnists writing that uh, Beller should be fired, we need a new manager. As soon as he was, the same columnists are writing something about the fact that that the uh, team management has made a great mistake by firing him. The uh, the easiest column to write is fire the manager, and uh, we've just done that here in Chicago. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. So now they hire a new guy, and uh, uh, you know, within a couple of uh, uh, of years or less, uh, fire him. Uh, you know, get rid of the general manager. I mean that. Uh, uh, and you know, reporters uh, are, and columnists uh, don't know all the things that are going on on the uh, on the team. They don't have all. They don't know all the reasons why the manager will take a pitcher out or leave a pitcher in or or or, or pinch hit. Uh, I mean, sometimes guys are injured. You just don't know all this stuff. But uh, uh, it it may. It, you seek controversy. I mean, the, the the editors want some controversy. Well, gents, but that's true for political columnists as well. Yeah, a columnist is supposed to have opinions. Right. Well, the, and but express the thing them. is, is that I understand that they're second guessing. Right. What the manager does, what the uh, general manager does, what what the pitcher did, or whatever. But the point is, is that they're they sit at one point in one month, they will suggest that a manager be fired, that he is not doing the job, that he doesn't have control of his team, that he doesn't, he can't motivate the team. And as soon as that manager is fired, he'll say, gee, they just jumped the gun. They didn't give this manager a chance. And it's, it just seems to me like most, especially here in Chicago, that most of the columnists are trying to create controversy and not trying to report or give opinions. I think you're right, and uh, I think that... Uh, there are some columnists who believe that uh, that you won't remember what they wrote yesterday. Our thanks to the caller, and we'll go uh, directly to another. 591-7200 is the number. I now uh, see I have one or two lines available. Uh, for a while, we were all booked up. We've now got a few lines free. If you've been trying to reach us, do quickly try again. And you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. How are you doing? All right. Uh, a friend of mine by the name of Stuart Meneker gave me a book <laughs> called Maxwell Street. And he right. said, my family name is in there, but read the book. You'll find it fascinating. What's your and name? I really did. My name? Yeah. My name's Labed. I worked under uh, I worked under Stu in his last job before he retired for the state. Uh-huh. And 
I'll tell you that one story stuck in my mind is about the fellow who had become very successful. Let's make clear, you're talking about a book written by Ira Virgo, huh? Yes. Maxwell Street. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, the story stuck in my mind, and every time I have a bad day, I think about this. He was a very successful man. And oh, Maury Mages? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Someone asked him when his toughest time was, when his greatest moment was, in essence, when things were really good for him. And he said... He lived in a one-room apartment with no window, and it was terribly cold in the winter and terribly hot. And he bought him in the summer, and then mm -hmm. he bought himself an old fan, took all his clothes off, and laid on the bed and plugged that fan in. He said that was my one of my best. Well, times. That, that was that was Don Joe Medlevine. Okay. Uh, who owned the Chaperie at one point. What a great story. Yeah, and uh, Stuart Meneker is an old friend of mine. Yes, I know. He told me that. And I, hadn't, I haven't seen him since he's in Florida, but we communicate right. on email. Yeah, Stuart and I were uh, the starting guards on the 1957 Sullivan High School basketball yeah. team. Yeah, he's, mm -hmm. and he was right. a coach for a lot of it, it years. It sure right. Then he became a, a head of uh, human resources. I, right. your, your, your comments are, puts me in mind of an, another thing that's happening that's being enacted right now. There's a campaign to try to get the city to stop uh, essentially tearing down historic Maxwell Street. I think it's a losing... Oh, it's, it's gone. gone. It's a done deal. It's, it's gone, gone. though. Yeah, but there's still gone. an organization that's struggling to maintain a few buildings. Well, the, yeah, to maintain, to maintain a few buildings, maybe have a, a museum there, but yes. uh, this, the street itself is... I know. Yes, is, so the place is, is gone. gone. Uh, I was uh, part of a group. Uh, they would ask me to uh, contribute... Uh, a statement or uh, or some spirit uh, mm -hmm. to 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 keeping the street uh, uh, as a historic uh, presence in in Chicago, but um, like uh, a Louis Sullivan Theater, they they yeah. tore the whole thing down. We what? thank the caller. Sorry, sir, we have to move on. We're late for some commercials yet once again. That's been my problem all night. We'll take care of those and then right back to the phones. Five nine one seventy two hundred, and we'll go quickly back to the phones for your calls to Ira Burkow author of The Minority Quarterback and Other Lives in Sports, published by Ivan R.D. By the way, if you want to get your hands on that book, and it's a wonderful reading, you can do so even this very night. If you go again to WGNRadio.com uh, and then go to our site and then go to our program schedule. If you then uh, scroll down the program schedule for, to tonight's date, you'll find a picture of the uh, cover of this book. If you click on that, you're instantly in the hands of uh, Barnes & Noble, who will sell you the book at a reduced price. 5917200, as we go to this caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, thank you. Uh, good evening. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Mr. Bricko, for many years about the, um, about the 1954 DeSabo team. I was so moved by the book you wrote about uh, Paxton Lumpkin and Charlie Brown and uh, Shelley McMillan and... Um, and the whole team, uh, that that important team, part of Chicago high school sports history, and uh, it's great to be able to ask you about it now. Some of your memories and reflections uh, over all these years. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, this was the 1954. Uh, it was the first all-black team with a black coach to succeed at the highest levels of integrated sports in America. And they went to the finals of the state championship, Illinois state championship, and then they lost. And their and the DuSable players felt that uh, they were robbed by redneck referees. Uh, and uh, I thought they had a case, but uh, they lost against Mount Vernon, and the star of the Mount Vernon team was a black guy with Avant, who had a fabulous game. Um, but uh, the DuSable team meant meant a lot. You know, it was it was an interesting, and I I, I made a um, 
a comparison uh, uh, that uh, 1954 team in which they broke uh, ground racially uh, was also uh, 54 was Brown versus Board of yes, Education, yes, which yes. was a, a fairly significant uh, event in uh, in race relations in America. And so uh, this was a historic team, and uh, they are in the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame as a team, this high school team. Um, yeah, yes, and, a, and one of the great moments, and you may know this, that Sweet Charlie Brown refereed one of the state finals championship games in Illinois a couple of years ago. Yeah, and well, uh, he's the only he's the only person I think who ever played in a state championship game and refereed a state championship yes. game. Um, but I see Charlie uh, periodically. We have a mutual friend in Barry Holt, uh, an attorney, and um, so I, I, I see him sometimes, and... Um, uh, and I'll never forget, you know, watching those DuSable uh, teams. And uh, when I was a 14-year-old boy, you uh, write about it so beautifully, taking the L down in the amphitheater. Right. Uh, Did any of those players go on into uh, professional play? Uh, one of them uh, was Shelly McMillan. He was the center, and mm -hmm. um, uh, he played for about four and a half years. Uh, 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 a sad life. Uh, yeah. And, and Paxton Lumpkin uh, became a dribbler yeah. for the Globetrotters. He and, died just a couple years yeah, ago. Yeah. And, and Sweet Charlie, the, the, and the other side, Sweet Charlie Brown. Uh, uh, went to Indiana with Pass and Lumpkin, and then they, they ran into some problems, and he transferred to Seattle, and he teamed up with Elgin Baylor at the University of Seattle, or Seattle University. 1958. And, 1958, and they went to, uh, uh, that team went to the NCAA finals and uh, lost to Kentucky in the finals. Sir, how do you know so much about them? Oh, I just love high, love this, love the high school history and high school sports, and, and this particular team I think is so important. You go across the south side of Chicago, and everyone will still remember and talk about the '54 well, DeSabo team. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you for the call. Okay, very, thank you. Very nice contribution. Five nine one seven two double zero. As we go to another caller. Hello, you're on the air. Hello. Uh, first of all, Mill, thank you for your program. Um, if I could ask uh, the, the question of the esteemed writer uh, in guest today, um, Mr. Burko. Um, my, call, my, my call is a full question. Um, one solicits your comments on the pending strike, and as another strike comes upon the baseball uh, community, does this, in fact, really have much merit from your view as a writer in the public's eyes relative to so many other choices that they have for sports entertainment, particularly so many of the farm teams that many communities go out and see today and which many families, which really is the lifeblood of, of baseball in America, um, are, are now so, so closely drawn to. And uh, if you could comment on that, but I do have a follow-on question I want to ask you. It's, well, it's, sir, time is rather short. I think maybe just well, one to a customer. Okay. Well, I'll 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 say that um, you know the both sides ha have a view of, of of what what the strike is about. Um, I I invariably take the player side because uh, um, I think that uh, that that there's a, a, a it should be a free marketplace and uh, and the owners are are trying to put. Uh, uh, ceilings uh, on the salaries, and uh, there should be uh, what the what the owner should do first is have revenue sharing, uh, and, and that would make things uh, uh, fairer, uh, I think. And as far as minor league ball is concerned, I remember um, it was in 1981 or two when there was a base uh, a, a strike, and um, I went to minor league games to write about what it was like going on in minor league games. And the minor league games are so much fun uh, that. Uh, uh, you don't need Major League Baseball on a regular basis. Uh, the minor leagues are a lot of fun. 
Here's my follow-on. It's very important that uh, anything from this context. Sir, I'm sorry, but I really said that we could only do one. Please accept my discipline, though it hurts me tremendously to be such a tyrant. But time is short, and I really wanted to spend the last few minutes, uh, not uh, with additional phone calls, so my apologies to those callers who are still waiting, but rather to um, put some, to get you talking a little bit about your own career and about such wisdom as may have come to you through your work. Indeed, I'll put that to you directly. What have you learned by hanging around with athletes all these years? What have you learned, not about them, not about the games, but about life, well, about human existence? Okay. Um, with Ted Williams, uh, I had done a, uh, I wrote about this, I had done a, I was doing a series in 1969, um, Marshall McLuhan, who's then a, uh, uh, a media expert, I guess. University and, of Toronto. Yeah, and, and he was a prominent writer at this time, and he was, among other things, said that baseball is doomed. And because it wasn't good for television, and uh, just lots of reasons. The, the theory went, it was it was a hot uh, sport, and television requires cool things. Yeah, right. Whatever that meant. Right. Well, and I asked Ted Williams at this time, 1969, I said, Ted, is it, um, is it, what are your thoughts? Uh, is baseball doomed? And the great hitter and philosopher said everything goes in cycles and uh, baseball will come back to its popularity that's true um, I learned something from Willie Mays uh, Willie was now in about his last year or well, no it was, it was a little, maybe it was a second he was about 41 years old and uh, he had just hit his I think his 600th home run or maybe he had a landmark RBI or something and it was, you know, he's up there with the greats. And uh, I, and I was a young reporter, and I saw him, and um, I walked over to him, and he may have known me, I don't remember, but uh, and we, and I, one of the first questions, I said, well, Woody, Willie, how much longer do you think you're going to play? And he has this high-pitched voice, and he said, why is everybody asking me how long I'm going to play? Do people want to get rid of me? Don't they want me to round, uh, around anymore? I just hit my 600th home run. Why don't people say, Willie, congratulations on hitting 600 home runs? And I looked at him. I thought, you're right. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it was it, it was inappropriate, really, of me just to come and, and, and ask a question like that. And so I learned that even even Willie Mays, even the great Willie Mays, has to be told congratulations you know nice job and uh, I mean nothing is taken for granted and from that from this point forward from that point forward rather that whenever I, 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 I meet so I and interview somebody um, I try to find something positive to say in the beginning not just flattery but a fact mm. you know you pitched a good game three weeks ago congratulations <laughs> or whatever it is but even Willie Mays, the great Willie Mays, who may have been the greatest all-around player of all time. Um, so, I mean, uh, I learned that. Um, I learned being a gentleman from some people. I, I talked about Jesse Barfield earlier and the, um, the courage of standing up in a situation that you weren't, didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, uh, Mickey Mantle, at the, at near the end of his life, saying, I'm not a hero. He said, he said, I've wasted so much of my talent. This is when he was dying of liver cancer. He said, look what I've done to myself. He said, uh, he said kids shouldn't look at me as being a hero. And um, uh, uh, the grace of, uh, of, 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 of some, of the, some of the athletes that I've watched, uh, 
uh, Fran Tarkenton was a great, great quarterback. Uh, and uh, he was told he was short, and he scrambled. His coach, Norm Van Brocklin, when he was a rookie, couldn't stand him because he liked to drop that quarterback. And and Fran Tarkenton said, I can do this. And uh, and he broke ground, and he was different. you know. And that, that took a certain courage. I can't resist asking you. You've done a wonderful new book, and you do wonderful writing for the New York Times. How much longer are you going to go on doing it? <laughs> uh, well, I you know I don't. Uh, I, it's still fun. It's still fun, and uh, right now I'm uh, I'm still excited by it, and it's still dramatic. And you do it superbly, and you go on doing it for the next 50 years. Ira Burkow has been our guest. Uh, the book that we've been drawing from tonight. Um, what is this, by the way, quickly? Uh, uh, your fifth, your tenth uh, book. Sixteen. Sixteenth book. Yeah. Um, and that book is titled The Minority Quarterback and Other Lives in Sports. We'll be back again tomorrow for the full two hours with a news review. Our guest, Mike McGuire of the Tribune, Perry Arnold of Notre Dame University, Charles Whelan of the London Economist. That's uh, tomorrow at 9. Thursday, a program about surfing the Internet. Until tomorrow at 9, a cordial good night to all.